Well, good morning. Welcome to you here in the room. Welcome to you who are joining us online again. It's really been a privilege to uh, uh, just see the body of Christ ministering to one another during these unique days. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 11, as we continue our study on Bible prophecy. Some of you know or remember Larry Moyer, uh, the evangelist and a friend of mine who has uh, been at the church a couple times through the years. A few years back, he spoke for our wild game dinner and also on, uh, the week, for the weekend services. And this week, he posted something online that I thought was a really, really good nugget. He said, if I were to put in one sentence what I see the Bible saying to us as believers, it would be, what you dwell on with your mind, you will produce with your life. What you dwell on with your mind is what you will produce with your life. That is so true. What occupies your thinking? When you're, when you're not thinking, you know, focusing on your job or something like that, your mind goes to neutral. Where is that? Because it'll reveal a lot about your identity your priorities, passions, emotions, what makes you happy or sad, joyful, angry, what brings you joy, what causes anger for you. In our prophetic passage today, we find how important this is that we are called in light of Christ's soon return in the rapture to think about how we think. To be very alert and aware, self-aware of how we think because we should not be thinking the same as our unbelieving world. In 1 Thessalonians 5, you may recall a couple of weeks ago we were in chapter 4, the perhaps best-known passage about the rapture, So just a few verses before where we begin is a description of Christ's return, as he promised. It'll be a resurrection and rapture, verse 17, after, uh, rather, verse 16. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's a resurrection day. After that, we who are still alive and are left, if it happens in our lifetime, will be caught up together with them, those being resurrected, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Christ is going to interrupt the globe. If if, if this has seemed like an interruption to the entire globe, wow, nothing will compare with hundreds of thousands of believers suddenly vanishing. So knowing that Christ could come back at any time, what should we be thinking about? Verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, but you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, 
destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, this is important, let us not be like others who are asleep, and let us be alert and self-controlled. Or you may have the word sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, sober. And here's, here's where he's going with this. Remember, what you dwell on with your mind, you will produce in your life. So let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. You'll recognize faith, hope, and love. This is faith, love, and hope. So we should be awake so that we will be characterized by faith, love, and hope. So let's go back to the beginning of the passage and kind of walk through it. And uh, we're going to be seeing this uh, jarring contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. Now, brothers, verse 1, that's us, right? Believers. Brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people, that's unbelievers. So, brothers and people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So there's a, there's a contrast, and the first issue he addresses is when. Having just told us that Christ is going to return, there's a resurrection and rapture, there's an obvious question, like, when's that going to happen? And he says, about dates and times, I don't need to tell you because I've taught you that it'll come like a thief in the night. One of the temptations, pitfalls of Christians who believe and appreciate biblical prophecy is that tendency to say, I think it's going to be here, then. And so there has been some sometimes well-known date-setting flops. Basically, he says, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm, I'm one of the many Christians who, observing these last six months of the pandemic and thinking, you know, this kind of crisis kind of makes you think about, is this somehow prelude to Christ's return? I remember in, uh, after 9-11, with the worldwide threat of terrorism, that I couldn't help but thinking, you know, this kind of fear just kind of makes you think we could be getting close to the rapture. And some of you, more my, maybe my parents' generation, Remember during that, the upheaval of the world with the, with the Vietnam War and the cultural revolution of the 60s, it's like, you know, all the whole moral foundations of acceptance, everything was changing, and so could we be getting to the moment when Christ comes back? Some decades before, World War II, the atomic bomb, you're kidding, we can destroy the whole world, or World War I, and I don't bring up this sequence to somehow downplay the imminency of the rapture, because actually, 
This is emphasizing the imminency of the rapture. And every generation and every crisis should cause us to say, wow, God could be planning to send Christ in his return at any moment. But we do know that we don't know when. Okay? We know that we don't know when. In fact, the emphasis should not therefore be on when he is coming, but how should I be living when he comes? Times and dates, we don't know. It's interesting, these two terms in the Greek language, times and dates, some of you have the translation says times and seasons. I would prefer that because these two time words are actually a little distinct. The first one is usually describing an actual date or event, like a dot on a timeline. And the second word is not so much a definite time, but it's an indefinite time, often describing like a season or a period of time. So he says, whether you're thinking about prophecy in terms of of, of certain events, dots, or whether you're thinking about lines, seasons, we don't know either one of those. But then he says, we do know what the next season is. Like a thief in the night, there will be the, the trigger that begins the day of the Lord. The biblical word day typically would mean a 24-hour day, except that repeatedly throughout the Old and New Testaments, you find this phrase, day of the Lord. And as you begin to look at different events of Bible prophecy, and, and to the degree we know some sequence, this is before the church age or whatever, you begin to realize that when it's day of the Lord, it's talking about events that are here and here and here and here, And they usually have to do with God's judgments of sinners, unbelievers, on earth. It's usually judgment on earth. And so let's just kind of review a little bit of our our timeline of a few things that we've learned already. As we think about living wide awake, what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is almost equated with what we sometimes call the end times. So if we start with the cross as our beginning point for now, New Testament truth, we are living in the church age somewhere in an unknown dotted line. But this church age we know to end with what we've been studying is the rapture. We rise to meet Christ who takes us to heaven and all Christians will be taken to heaven in the rapture. The season after that, we know that there is a seven-year tribulation. We were studying in Daniel 9, uh, verses 24 to 27, and this, the 70th seven or the 70th week of Daniel has not yet been fulfilled, and it correlates perfectly with a seven-year period of time described in the book of Revelation. So we know that is yet future. And then here's an event we have not yet studied and distinguished, but we could rightly call it the second coming of Christ, distinguished from the rapture. And we'll see why when we get to that. Because this, instead of coming for Christians to take us to heaven, he's coming to judge unbelievers at the end of the tribulation era. That is followed, Revelation 20, with a millennium, a thousand-year period of time on earth. Okay? So that's just kind of a a broad spectrum. And when you find the term day of the Lord, you actually find it describing events really from tribulation judgments all the way to a judgment called the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. And so you realize the day of the Lord is a pretty broad season. 
But it's when God is wrapping things up. What our passage teaches us here today is that there is a trigger to the beginning of that, which comes like a thief in the night. And so it is, I think, a proper description of the rapture. Only the previous studies of the rapture, we focused on the event, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. What is happening at the rapture? Now it's beginning to focus on what does the rapture initiate or inaugurate? What, what, what's, what's going to happen next? So it's, we're getting prepared to understand a little bit more of the rest of the story. So this season of time will start like a thief in the night. So think of that analogy. A thief doesn't send you a text message saying, I'll be there 3 a.m. Thursday. Kind of defeats his purpose. He comes when it's least expected. So likewise, this season will start suddenly, shockingly, surprisingly, for most, except that we're expecting it any time. So it won't be entire. If a thief shows up at your house, if you've never had a thief before, it's completely unexpected. But if you were getting robbed every other week, it'd be a little different. See, we have this expectation he could come at any time. The second analogy is labor pains likewise. And the point is that the unbelievers will be completely oblivious. And then this judgment starts. They'll be saying, verse 3, Peace and safety. Uh, Bible students aren't sure. I'm not sure whether this is describing uh, the mindset of the unbeliever just before the rapture or just after the rapture in the tribulation. You can kind of see how it could fit either way. Peace is a relational term. Overall, the population wants peace. Now, there are those who want to make war for their own agenda, people of power, for many reasons, I assume. So, but mostly people want peace, and everybody wants safety. And it could well describe this season even, because this, uh, the pandemic has produced a global focus on physical safety. We've got to be safe. But terrorism, pandemics, nothing will compare to the kind of trauma and fear and desire for peace and safety that will be desired and longed for in the tribulation. Again, just to, to, to be clear, notice that uh, Paul has shifted from the pronoun we, which he used to describe the rapture, chapter 4, verse 17, we who are alive and remain, he expected it to happen in his lifetime. Now in verse 3 of chapter 5, the people, they. And the reason he can say they is because he knows he won't be there. And that's why we, uh, one more reason why we uh, deduce that the rapture is the next event and prior to the judgments of the tribulation. Paul is writing as a Christian to a Christian. And since the rapture has not yet happened, he's saying it's going to be triggered in a sudden moment. But his point, as we now see, is not just when it will happen, because we don't know, but how we should live, because that we do know. How should we live since we know Christ can return at any time? Because what you dwell on with your mind is what you will produce in your life. 
And so just so we know, as we now look at verses 4 through 7, or rather 4 through 8, what he's getting to is that what we should be producing in our life is the same thing we should have been producing the last 5, 25, or 50 years, ever since the first century, and that is faith, love, and hope. But you, brothers, verse 4, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. What does it say about us if the place that our mind has been is the same place that an entire, at least an entire block of unbelievers are saying, yeah, I'm thinking the same things. See, that's where we are called to be thinking entirely different, not because of circumstances, but because we are believers in Christ, expecting Christ's return. So what does it say about us if if we are thinking just like unbelievers think, let us not be like others. We're very, very different. So what's different about us is that we are to be awake, alert, and sober. So people around us live in the same neighborhoods, similar houses, work for the same company, turn the same calendar pages, but they are asleep and drunk compared to how we should be. That's just the terms he puts it in. Because we think so differently and that what we dwell on in our minds is producing something very different in our lives. Now, the place he goes to then in verse 8 is that we would be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. I mean, you get the analogy. This is soldier talk. Breastplate and uh, helmets. So if you've uh, read Ephesians 6, you know that's the chapter uh, that has one of the best descriptions of what spiritual warfare is all about and how we stay strong knowing we have an enemy. Uh, He uses two of the same pieces of armor in this illustration. The term self-control, in my translation, many of you have the word sober, and and it really is a It's more of an alcohol term. It usually means sobriety as opposed to someone who's drunk and out of control. In fact, the grammatical form is saying, get sober. Calling on Christians to get sober. In other words, gain control of emotions, gain control of your desires, gain control of your priorities so that you are wide awake and spiritually prepared for that which is most important. Because that's what soldiers do. How many, how many of you have served in some, some area of the military? Okay. You have to be awake when you're on duty. It is a serious dereliction of duty to be drunk on duty. And that's what he's calling us to. Be sober, because if you're not sober, it'll prevent you from these three essential 
spiritual qualities of faith, love, and hope. Notice the two pieces of armor he selected are breastplate and helmets. If you think of a, of a Roman soldier, those are both defensive pieces of armor. Breastplate keeps your sword from going through here. Helmet keeps the sword from going through here. Why does he use defensive armor here? Because he assumes there is someone on the offense. So who's on the offense against us? We're supposed to take our enemy, Satan, very seriously. So that whatever is happening around us, we see through spiritual eyes because what we dwell on in our mind, the way we think, will affect, obviously, the way we live, what we emphasize. How often do you think about your enemy spiritually? Consciously aware, hmm, this would be something that Satan wants. We're supposed to be very aware that we have a personal enemy. He wants to make use of spiritual weaknesses in our character. He wants to make use of emotional circumstances, loneliness, depression, isolation. He makes use of temptations that the unbelieving world just churns and spews out that Christians are also attracted to. He wants to use false ideas. There's plenty of those. He wants to use immorality, immoral values. We have a very distinct enemy. He does not know every thought you have. He's not omniscient. Don't ever paint Satan as if he is the equal opposite of God. He's not. He's a created being. There's infinite and there's finite. There's creator and there's created. But he's smarter than we are, craftier, thousands of years of experience. And so he knows how we think. So be alert. <clears throat> but being alert does not just mean think about Satan. Specifically, we are to be thinking about faith and love as a breastplate putting those on, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So he pairs faith with love. Notice that. It's two core relationships that will be essential to you staying on track spiritually. Faith is Godward. It's your trust in God. That's a vertical relationship. Love is, I believe you're focused on love for one another. Okay? So, you can pretty much measure how you're doing spiritually by how much you're trusting God and how much you're loving one another. Your connection to God, your connection to fellow believers, tell the tale. So how is your faith-trust relationship to God these days? How are you dealing with whatever causes anxiety or concern for you? Fear is one of the key tactics of Satan. Just stir up fear because to the degree that we are obsessed with fear, we are not close to Christ. 
So what do you fear? And people are fearing, fearing all ends of every spectrum. There's, there's different kinds of fear, but when whatever it is that we are reading or absorbing is creating fear, Satan is winning. Love, the other spiritual defense. Love for one another, it's the, it's the agape word. Self-sacrificing love, that means the ability to like, put yourself in the other person's place and know what is most meaningful, caring for them. That's, so that's what marriage is about, right? Right? That's what relationships are about. What is best for the other person? That's, that's what love, that's what agape love is. So, to the degree, and so this, this is the next key strategy of Satan. Not just now, but especially now. And that is division, bitterness, anger at one another. Through the years and centuries, really, far more churches and ministries have been destroyed because of the failure to love well than even from the failure to believe right. As serious as it is to have bad doctrine, and I'm big on doctrine, division causes more damage than doctrine. So, how well are you showing grace? We've all realized during these six months that pandemics and politics are creating divisions. By now you've discovered that some of your very best Christian friends think differently about those things. Right? Everyone. Everyone's got some, some, some of those relationships. What a great place to grow spiritually. I mean, if God wanted to craft a, a situation to cause us to really grow in our love for one another, this is perfect. I'm just trying to think God's thoughts, right? Trust me better, God says. So here's some fear. Love each other more. Here's, here's some tests. The other place we are acquainted with faith, hope, and love, of course, is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. It's not just about marriage. It fits well there, but now abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. Somehow it is just so vital. So read it and evaluate how that characterizes you spiritually in these days. Lack of faith, lack of love will drag us down emotionally and spiritually. Uh, talking to several in the church family who are involved in the uh, mental health field, or and you've read the articles as well, suicides are up, depression. Uh, but the ones I've talked to, they're dealing with extreme reactions to the fear, the, the, the conflicts, the issues of the current day. And where there is emotion, our emotions and our spiritual life are so tied together, aren't they? I can't help but be concerned for our spiritual state as we think of our emotional state as Christians. Uh, recently, on one of the uh, motorcycle touring Facebook pages I'm on, I just revealed there's more than one, um, there was a post by a guy who told a story, a true story, experience, he organized a group ride of motorcyclists for a day-long ride. 
And uh, I, I don't know the size of the group. It was five or six or 15, whatever it was. And so they head out on their, on their day-long thing, and they had a planned stop for lunch. They eat their lunch at this restaurant, and it's time to get up and finish the ride. And two of the guys on the ride said, Hey, you know what? You guys go on. We know the way. We're, we're enjoying our drinks. We're just going to hang out a little bit longer. The leader of the ride and the other guys on the ride recognized the danger immediately. We're riding motorcycles. You don't stay and have a few more drinks. And they urged them, please come with us. And the guys could not be talked down. Eventually, they left. And guess what? One of those two guys on the ride home had a very serious accident. He survived, but a very serious accident attributed to alcohol. And so the guy in his post was saying, man, I, just, I still feel guilty. And of course, everybody assured him, you did everything you could do. They wouldn't come. But you see, once there was a separation from the group, the leader was helpless to in any way contribute or ensure their safety because they separated themselves. Just to be frank, that's a little bit how I've sometimes felt as a pastor these last six months. Uh, there's been a separation and, 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 and isolation. And so as pastors, elders, adult Bible fellowship leaders, we, we, we long to be together because we know God, God uses that. We are spiritually safer when we have continual contact with one another. And I say this, please understand, I say this, with absolutely no judgment for those who haven't returned to regular uh, physical uh, in-person fellowship. If it's caution or childcare or, or whatever it is, this is not about that. But, but I, I want to urge all of us that we would regain an appreciation for one another and the safety of the group spiritually. Um, in normal times, as shepherds, there's, we, we try to keep track to whatever degree we can. And if we notice that somebody is attending church or studies or whatever less and less, just kind of notice. And, and if they drop off entirely, there's generally something going on. If, if they've gone to another church or Bible study or something, that's fine. But that's, that's during normal times. These aren't normal times. And, and so it's been really hard to shepherd and know how people are doing. And, and yet, I've, in many ways, I've been very encouraged because uh, people are so creative. And, and our church family has been creative in this. And, and uh, I just urge you, you need two things. You need to gather around the Word of God and you need to gather with people. And uh, our, our online ministry, uh, I'm suggest and our numbers suggest that, that so many of you are so faithful in, in continuing on to, to be a part of the word. And I, and I do hear a lot, of, a lot of different opportunities that people are taking with much smaller groups or with family or calling one another. That's great. Make sure you have those two elements. Gathering around the word and encouraging one another. We need to stay connected. 
And here's a specific suggestion. We've tried as, as uh, pastors, elders, ABF leaders to, to be in touch. But we, we haven't always been in touch with everybody like we'd like to. But if we haven't had much contact with you, please feel free to shoot us an email, uh, either as pastors or your ABF leader or somebody, just to kind of make sure that we don't have people falling through the cracks so that we could know something of how you're doing. We don't want this physical separation to become a spiritual uh, spiral in any way. So here's my plea. How's your faith in God? That's the first piece of the breastplate. Do you trust God or do you trust what you believe about COVID? Do you trust God or do you trust whatever governing officials you would prefer? Do you trust God? Do you love in spite of differences? Do you, do you show grace? Anything else, anything less places us in a spiritual position of vulnerability. So these times are just maybe a little bit accented, but it's the same thing that was true in Thessalonica, A.D. 51. Wake up, sober up, because what you dwell on in your mind will be what you produce in your life. That's the breastplate, faith and love, and then the hope of salvation as your helmet. Hope, remember, we've discussed is in the New Testament, essentially the word confidence because it's future that's why it's called hope but in terms of the biblical expression it's about a promise so it's confidence about what is coming so salvation is what's coming we know we're going to be okay the hope of salvation and so there's no place for panic the sky is falling the sky is falling but rather we are the four-year-olds during the lightning storm, running to mom and dad's bedroom, crawling there and falling asleep, even though the storm hasn't changed one bit. But now we know we're safe. Trust God, love one another, and then live confidently. Why? Verses 9 through 11. For, or because, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, that means when Christ returns, that is, we've either died or we are still living, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. That is our absolute bedrock confidence. We know we will not experience the wrath of God. What wrath does he have in mind? He's just spoken of the day of the Lord and the coming judgments of God on the earth. And the day of the Lord includes the judgments of the tribulation. If you uh, read the bulk of a book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 18, really 19, there's judgment after judgment. Judgment on earth, worship in heaven. Judgment on earth, worship in heaven. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 10, it's like we're given a little preview to the book uh, prophetically. To wait for his son from heaven, that's the rapture, 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so I, while this would include uh, hell in one sense, eternally, I, I think the focus is on God's judgment on earth, or Revelation 3.10, just before all the tribulation stuff starts, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So why are we both eternally and in earthly sense spared the wrath of God? Verse 10, he died for us. It's all the cross. He died for us. Is the only reason we as sinners are spared the wrath of God. Nothing else. It's the cross. Christ endured God's wrath in our place. Skeptics of Scripture often point to the Christian teaching of heaven and hell and complain that God isn't fair if he sends people to hell. A more accurate statement would be this. God isn't fair that he allows anyone into heaven. That is not really just. Because justice would be that all would be eternally punished. Romans 3.23 says exactly that. For all have sinned and come short of God's glory. So the, God's glory is his perfect standard. None of us qualify. All of us have sinned. So it's really more accurate to say that God is not fair to send anyone to heaven. But... He died for us, bearing God's wrath in our place. That's why we can go to heaven. Because God sent his eternal son, the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, who became man, became man so that he could die. And as God, he was the perfect sacrifice. And all the sin of all mankind of all the centuries was placed upon Jesus. And then God, in his holy wrath, poured all of his wrath upon Jesus. He died for us. It's the uniform message of the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 5, prophetically, Isaiah told us that repeatedly, if you read the whole chapter, he was pierced for our transgressions. Or Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That little phrase, Christ died for us, is so familiar in, in religious jargon, especially in America, I guess, that so many people say, I believe Christ died for us. But they aren't really getting it. That means he died instead of us. He was punished so that we wouldn't be punished. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that's Christ who had no sin, to be sin for us in our place. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins, not his, our sins in his body on the cross. Romans 9.28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And you could add more passages There is this incredible transaction that Christ on the cross bore the penalty for our sin, and it makes all the difference in the world. Verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep when Christ comes back, we may live together with him. He died to take our punishment. That's what John 3.16 is all about. If you're familiar with this verse, 
You know it if you haven't become familiar. This is crucial. It puts it all together in a perfect package. God so loved the world, that's each of you, each of us here, that he gave his only son, that's the cross, where Christ took our place. So there's one essential decision that we have to make, that whoever believes in him should not perish, that's hell, but have eternal life, that's heaven. So the crucial question in terms of our response to what Christ did for us, if we truly understand we are sinners, we deserve his judgment, Christ took, our judgment in our, took, took the judgment in our place, there is a response required. The response is not something we do, it's something we trust that God did for us through Christ. Whoever believes in him. So the crucial question of believing is essentially this expression, what are you trusting in? For eternal life. The word believe has become very vague in our usage about anything. I believe there would have been a football and basketball and baseball season like normal, but that didn't happen. So believe often just means we kind of expect something and kind of hope it happens. But that's not what it means when it says whoever believes in Christ, because what it means there is what it, whoever puts their trust, reliance upon Christ instead of themselves. And so that's the only way you can know that you will be in heaven, whether alive on earth or having died at the time of Christ's return. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace, that is, grace meaning undeserved favor of God, by grace you have been saved, saved being from the penalty of your sin, through faith, and the word faith is the same as the word believing. So we are saved by believing in what? Christ, he paid for our sins. And this not from yourselves. This is why I love this verse, is because it clarifies what it's not. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We, we all boast. We, we, we imply our goodness all over the place. None of that in heaven. Won't that be refreshing? No bragging in heaven. Because everyone who is in heaven will realize they're there only because of the grace of God. And so the one decision that we, in this, on this planet, in our sinful condition, the one thing we must do to respond to what he did for us is to decide to place our trust, our faith in Christ alone. I want to share what I've shared a few months ago. The three circles, C, W, C plus W. Yeah, I, I know some of you have seen this. I try to share it a couple times a year. Um, I know we've had people that have joined us uh, online for the past months. And so maybe it's the first time you've seen it. Or maybe it's the first time you've really ever grappled with the reality of where will I be one moment after I die? Because... The fear of death has just been really brought to the surface in these days, hasn't it? So where will you be one moment after you die? Or if indeed the scripture is true, and it is, and Christ returns in the rapture, will you be one that's taken up with him to meet the Lord in the air? So it says it promised he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep at that moment, we would live together with him. So I want to make sure that whether you're in this room or whether you're watching with us online, that you have made the decision to put your trust in Christ. So what do these three circles represent? 
C represents Christ, what we've been talking about, that he took our place on the cross. W represents good works, because this is the most common explanation that people vaguely give about God if they believe something about a superior being. Well, if you're a good person, you go to the good place. That's the assumption. Others would say, well, I've heard about Christ. I'm going to, I'm going to, I want it all. Only here's the problem with that view. If you're, if you're trusting in Christ plus good works, if you don't have good works, you got nothing. So really, the second and third circle had the exact same failure. What does the Bible say? We're saved by faith, not by works. So what are you trusting in for eternal life? And so I just urge you that in the quietness of this room or the quietness of the room where you are, you could just express to God right now that you understand that he sent his son, Jesus, to bear the punishment for your sin. Thank him for that. And then tell him that you are putting your trust in Christ alone right now. And according to God's word, if you are placing your trust in Christ alone right now, you have eternal life. Your eternal life starts today. You are spiritually alive today. And so that if the rapture comes today, next week, 20 or 100 years from now, you'll go to be with him. And if you die today or 20 years or 50 years from now, you'll go to be with him. And that's our promise. Now, I hope you find that very encouraging because that's exactly what he meant, God meant for it to do. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Hmm. What you focus on with your mind is what you will produce with your life. So, a good test to see if our mind has been focused the right place is this past week. Who have you encouraged? Have you encouraged people or discouraged or alarmed them? Have you encouraged them? Have you built up someone or criticized someone? Think, think, think wide awake. Think alert. Think about what God is trying to produce in us. The because what you dwell on with your mind will be what you produce in your life. So our goal must be to encourage and build up. And if we haven't been, we can kind of back away and say, well, then if I haven't been encouraging and building others up, what needs to change in the way I think so that I can produce encouragement and spiritual growth in others? Let's pray together. Father, we all know how far short we fall from your standard of perfection. And so we have realized, I trust, our need for your grace in saving us, saving us eternally. Lord, in this journey, we also realize how far we fall short of your goals for us of faith, really trusting you, love, really showing grace to each other, and really living confidently no matter what happens around us. So, our Heavenly Father, we just entrust ourselves to pursue your goals for us. In Jesus' name, amen.